there is this research that needs to be done when you're thinking about how and where you want to operate a business. Not only are we curating the best a city has to offer, but we're creating our own original content around it. The weird thing about entrepreneurship is people think that to be an entrepreneur, you sort of have to like jump up on the table, kick a stapler across the room, and then say, I quit. I think that most people that start a small business don't want to be a small business forever. I know I don't. I wish more people would just ask, like, why can't I do stuff Welcome, everyone. We're here today at the uh, lovely Your Business Matters studio at the corner of Tennessee and St. Joe Boulevard in lovely Fort Wayne, Indiana. Uh, I am not the usual host that you expect to hear start the show. I'm Steve Franks, normally a co-host. Today, I'm a host, and my guest is Mark Hagar. Mark, say hi. Hi, Steve. Good, good to see you. This is going to be an unusual show because we're used to co-hosting together. That's right. Uh, today you're going to learn more about Mark. It's going to be Bizarro, Your Business Matters. Oh, right. my. Bizarro, Bizarro World. world. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to do it all, everything upside down. So for those of you who were waiting to learn more about who is this man that hosts this wonderful show, here he is. So, so hi, Mark. Hi, Steve. How did you get started in this little, this wonderful world of uh, entrepreneurship, if you will? Sure. Well, uh, I'm a Fort Wayne native. I went to Northrop High School, a very, uh, you know, traditional Northeast Indiana upbringing, out uh, rural area, agricultural area, um, not on a farm, but in farm country for sure. Um, as a teenager, I detasseled corn. If the, those of you that might know what that was like for your first job, and you I learned have what? No idea what that is. Did you work with animals? No, you you work in the field. Um, yeah. Uh, and I don't think they do this anymore. Or at least they do it automated. But um, it used to help um, the plant grow or the seeds germinate by um, you would pull on the top of a corn stalk is a piece of there's a tassel that sticks up, a little yellow tassel. Yeah. And you would pull that off. And there were scads of teenagers, usually in trailers, and they would go along the rows of corn, and you would just yank those off all day and get giant blisters on your hand. And piece rate out work in or the just heat. hourly work? Hourly work. Um, there was no way to count the piece rate on something like that. <laughs> um, uh, miserable work, actually. <laughs> I, I see people occasionally on Facebook post something about, say, oh, don't you remember those times? Those yes. were the, quote, good was, old days, huh? Those were, there was nothing good about those days. It was hot <laughs> and miserable, and, um, you know, it was, it was really hard work. Um, and I think I was about 15 when I did that. Um, you know, so, again, if you're from this area, maybe you had that experience. Um, you know, fairly atypical of how we grew up. But um, I grew so, up in a – I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, go ahead and tell I was, us. Say, well, I grew up in a house, you know, my parents, um, hardworking people both. Um, my dad was the first entrepreneur that I knew, though. My dad owned a barber shop, and um, no matter what else has happened to me in my life, I would say, you know, the lessons that you learn at the kitchen table with an entrepreneur at dinner time are the best lessons in business you'll ever get. And, and nothing more profound than that has ever been taught to me at any of the universities that there, I've attended. There's the kitchen table, and then there's actually the barber shop. Did you spend time there too? I did. Uh, you know, sweeping the floors, learned how to work a mop while I was there. Detasseling some of the people that were there I, as I never, customers. Never had, never got the opportunity to give a haircut. <laughs> um, yeah, I was uh, still pretty young. He left that. Um, yeah, I was a teenager, I guess, when he stopped doing that. Hmm. 
as his living and took a job. So uh, your first exposure to entrepreneurship was something where customers and customer service was primal. Absolutely, right? You, the things that drove your decision were directly related to customers and customer feedback and the potential to lose a customer and how you can gain another one. And repeat business. And Absolutely. Repeat heads. Yes, right. The more heads so, to the door. Everybody needs a haircut. What great lessons yeah. to learn at a young age. You know? It really was. And, you know, on a macro level, one of the most fascinating things, and I tell this story a lot, um, is that, you know, my dad would make the point that when he started out as a barber, um, men's hairstyles were very short. And you essentially needed a haircut every Mine week is, or two. Yeah, not- well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yours is a low-profit margin. <laughs> right. but, um, but he talked about the fact that, when men's hair was much shorter, they needed to get it cut more frequently. And when you roll that forward into the early oh. 70s, when young people weren't getting their haircuts ever, <laughs> and he just talked about the dynamics of how that changes your business. Uh, and I always thought that was really fascinating because, you know, yes. uh, most of us go to work every day and we just think about what's in front of us. And um, But, you know, for that kind of observation to come along, and he just said, look, you know, it, it changed the way we did business fundamentally. Yes. You know, so it was, I don't know, it was just one of those uh, interesting insights that, again, you pick up at the kitchen so, table. So reaching back and uh, thinking about what was the first business that that you owned or did? I sold fishing worms. You did? Out of my garage, yeah. We'd go out, um, you know, in uh, a late uh, night summer rain. We'd go out with a flashlight, and night crawlers would be on top of the grass yeah right and you and you pick up and if you got uh, anytime you had more than three dozen then you had something worthy of selling cool open the garage door put a little sign out you know fishing worms and somebody would drive by and say oh, you got a dozen night crawlers and they were on their way or they were going to go fishing the next day or whatever and so that was probably i was probably about still a teenager at that point? i was probably about 12 when i started doing that 12? yeah ah. yeah i tried doing okay. bicycle repair for a while and then found out that um you know, my market wasn't diverse enough. Uh, out in the country, there weren't a lot of people who needed bicycle repair. Um, and then I also found out that I really wasn't that good at it. <laughs> I, I was fairly mechanically inclined as a young person. but Better, um, better with worms than bicycle yeah, yeah, repair, Yeah, right? somebody would bring okay. this in and say, my derailleur isn't switching all the way to all 10 gears. And I would kind of scratch my head and go, yeah, I don't know how to fix that. Yeah, you're right, it's not. <laughs> it clearly is not, but I don't know what to do about <laughs> it. Uh, so let's fast forward a little bit. Uh, you've uh, uh, you've done a lot of things. You ended up working in many different businesses. I have uh, investing been, in other businesses. I've been very lucky. Uh, one of the first major ones I'm going to guess that you worked in was printing. Absolutely. Um, I had I had worked in printing um, straight out of high school. I didn't go to college uh, until later in life. Uh, straight out of high school, I started working in the printing industry. Um, stayed with that really enjoyed uh, the, the it's very artistic um, you know it's a mechanical process but there's a definitely a, a few people understand that that's a great insight yeah it, it, it really was and I, um, I said I enjoyed it I think I was good at it um, you know all indication was that I was good at it um, love the people I worked with the people in that industry are, are um, they're an interesting breed of people and I mean that in the most positive way possible mm-hmm. Um yeah, I th- just thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, 
I went back to school. Uh, and, and so here's what happened to me. I, I had a, a partner. I ran a large press, and I had a partner. We were, you know, both in the union, uh, and uh, he was his name was Larry, and Larry was probably 25 years older than me. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a nice life. He had a, um, a, a married to a wonderful woman. They had two teenage kids. At least you know when I knew them, uh, or when I first got to meet him, their kids were already teenagers, and. You know, I looked at him, though, and I could say that was going to be my life in 25 years doing mm-hmm. what I was doing. And there's, it was great, um, but was it going to be enough? And I started out really, I became obsessed with that kind of notion is that, is this going to be enough? Um, the lifestyle I'm currently living, um, you know, and I mean, the answer came back, no, no matter how I sliced it, uh, no matter how much I enjoyed what I did today, looking at knowing that that's what I'd be doing 10 years from now and 20 years from now, it just didn't. It, the answer always came back that this isn't what I want to do. This is not enough, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I decided to go back to school. And I was at the ripe old age of about 28. I became a college freshman <laughs> um, with the intention really of, and I remember specifically telling my wife, I'm just going to get a, an associate's degree. That's sort of my plan. I want to get an associate's degree um, just to have the experience for one, uh, certainly to gain the knowledge. I wanted it to be marketing related and, uh, you know, We'll see if it leads to a different or better job, but it'll lead to something. Um, and, it, and it certainly has. Uh, but it, what it really led to is one vein of my life uh, is that I've never left school since the age of 28. I've been a student or a teacher every semester uh, for, I'm 52 now. So for quite some time, uh, I've been involved in education. And I got my associate's degree. I matriculated, got my bachelor's degree. Um, eventually got an MBA, and I'm currently working on my doctorate. And in between those periods of being a student, I was an adjunct faculty member at Trine University and University of St. Francis and at Ivy Tech, uh, where I had my own start. And so education has become a very big part of my life and certainly is a very important part of my life. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing in your doctoral work, how you're focusing your your thoughts. So let's let's get academic here. Yeah, for a second, oh, I Mark. love it. Um, I hope everybody's had some coffee. <laughs> I, I find people don't generally find it as interesting as I do, <laughs> but I'll do my best. Um, another part of my history is that I work with financially distressed businesses. Um, came about that really through the work I was doing as a, as an instructor at a university. Um, somebody approached a university about a project uh, for their company. I got involved in that project with my students, and along the way came to discover that there was uh, fin- financial distress within this business, took it on as a consulting project, helped this guy, uh, and that blossomed into a part of my career that I've done for 20 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it's an interesting thing because you never really get to talk about it. You know, I mean, I've, I've never um, told anyone who any of my clients have been. I've worked on over 50 projects in the last 20 years, and no one knows of any of my clients unless one of the clients told somebody because I don't speak of it, right? Nobody's proud of the fact that they had to hire somebody like me to help exactly. them fix their business, you know? And so, and I respect that. And these are wonderful people who, um, you know, headed down a wrong path with their business f- for very legitimate reasons, usually, because they had a belief that the market was going somewhere it wasn't, or, you know, they put their faith in an employee or an idea, you know. And so people come about this distress in very honest ways. So this big part of my career, um, my research is directly related to that. Um, there is a phenomenon that's very commonly known among those of us who participate in the turnaround practice, 
I'm a certified turnaround professional, but there are, you know, people that don't have that designation who, of course, do what I do as well, accountants um, and business advisors. What very well-known phenomenon, we talk about it a lot, and that is those individuals who own a business that gets into financial distress, they hire me or someone like me to help them develop a strategy to get out, and then they choose not to implement that strategy. And this is not a failure to implement the strategy. This is someone who simply chooses not to. Um, we all talk about it in frustration, right? I mean, this is, I say, this is cocktail party fodder. Like, what is wrong with this guy? The, the, my real research question when I started is, what is wrong with this person? Um, the academics don't like that, and so I had to rephrase it. But um, in the process of working on my doctorate, what I've done is research from the viewpoint of practitioners as to some of the reasons this happens. Um, so some of the reasons why what would appear to be a rational decision isn't made. Right, right. And, and obviously there's a decision being made, so something's going on. And you're, well, you're working on what are some of those reasons. Yeah, I mean, to the what extent... What are those things that are going on? To the extent that not making a decision is a decision in itself. Correct. Right? Um, and it, that's not always the case. Um, you know, there's always this level of procrastination that we know, um, you know, people participate in in every level. Procrastination, by definition, means something that you intellectually know is beneficial but emotionally difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can put that off forever. I mean, you can procrastinate every day. It's something that you're going to do tomorrow, next week, next month, and never do it. And that's a daily decision, right? to the extent uh, where we started this conversation about to the extent that not acting is a decision – it's not a final decision that they sometimes ever make. They always intend to. They just make that decision today. I'm not, I was going to lay off those people today. Right? I mean, these the, the strategies to right. get out. What's that? The time isn't right. Well, the time isn't right. The strategies to get out of financial distress are all uncomfortable, yes. which is really difficult for me. And when I talk to my clients, it's the hardest part for them to understand. You want me to bring you a comfortable solution, and there, there are none. There are none. I have four solutions for you, all uncomfortable. Pick one. Choose where you want to be uncomfortable and how you want to be uncomfortable, <laughs> and go forth and conquer. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, that's the truth, right? Um, getting into trouble is easy. Getting out of trouble is difficult. Um, so, so if we book in that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, with the other side of what you do, you invest in startup companies. I do some investment so in startups. Here we are seeing you work with companies that, if they're not careful, that they are at the end of their life mm-hmm. uh, without your help, right? Or are just starting out, right? And one of the key distinctions of a distressed company is the the it's implied that the company was successful at one point, and so we make a strong because the the skill set. Um, of working with distress isn't the same as working with startups. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times people think it is. And, and no, if you've never earned money, that's not, that's not distressed, <laughs> right? That's just failing. That's failure. That's failing moving <laughs> forward. Well, it, it, it may not be final yet, but it's, you're failing um, versus a company that was successful and then kind of gets into this you know, distress period. So I make that distinction. But a couple of years ago, I, I've done some, I, I, I would say dabbled in startups um, for maybe 10 years, um, small investments here and there, lots of mentoring, um, worked through worked through some of the methods that don't work really well. 
Um, when, and you, I think we all have a tendency to do this, right? We start something, we have this notion that I want to put money into the startup. Um, anybody that watches Shark Tank, first of all, stop watching Shark Tank. But if you've seen Shark Tank, then you know that, um, you know, you'll see the struggle for what percentage. And you often see the struggle over the 51% and the 49 or maybe you, if you've been involved in that personally. Uh, and I, you know, was an active participant in that game 10 years ago. You know, I'm going to put in X amount of money, but I have to have this much equity, and I want control, and I want a board seat, and I want – and um, as though I could force some of these successes. Um, and I think what I learned over time is you can't. Uh, you can't force – you can't for, You certainly can't force someone else to be successful. Right? You mm-hmm. can will your own success to a Probably degree. Probably the least fun part of that was you just signed yourself up to run whatever that was. It, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Why um, not let the people that are doing it run it? Right. And, and I think, you know, those are the lessons that I learned over six or seven years of doing it. Maybe, I don't know, maybe a dozen. Nah, it wasn't a dozen deals, less than a dozen deals. Um, and I decided that if I were going to, for a while, I just decided to abandon the whole startup notion. Like, there's no reason to be involved in this at all. Um, but then, you know, I decided to re-engage with it, but decided to do it in a much more formal way. And that started with a simple phone, uh, email to Paul Singh, uh, tech tour. Paul Singh has been to Fort Wayne. Did you meet him for the first time when he came to Fort Wayne? I did. Um, in so, fact, we, we interviewed him for Your Business Matters. All right, can, I did. Would, would you like to tell the folks that are listening now more about what he does? Yeah, and... absolutely. So Paul's a prolific investor. Uh, he had run some uh, venture capital funds on the coast for a while and then decided to do angel investing. Um, I think he's up over 3,000 investments in 50 countries or something like that mm-hmm. now. Um, underachiever, huh? Uh, yeah, a bit of an underachiever. Um, and so I reached out to Paul and said, you know, I've dedicated a portion of my portfolio to um, tech startups. I'm just wondering if you have any advice. And, you know, Paul is so generous with his knowledge. Um, and his answer was, well, you know, he, he does this thing called Tech Tour where he travels all around the country and visits uh, smaller markets like Fort Wayne, where there's not a lot of um, money available. And then he looks for opportunities to invest. And uh, he said, you know, the the easy thing for you to do would be to just come with me for a while and see, you know, I'll show you firsthand how I do it. Um, And so I took him up on it. Um, I mean, you know, I would say if Michael Jordan invites you to play basketball, you play basketball, right? (laughs) So Paul Singh says, hey, let's go do some investing. Yeah, absolutely, man, let's go. Uh, So I've been to about a dozen cities with Paul. And we listen to, you know, roughly 20 uh, pitches in every market we go to. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a road show. If you've never had the opportunity to listen to him, I highly encourage you go to his blog. You know, um, he's very entertaining. ResultsJunkies.com. ResultsJunkies.com. Um, he and Dana, like again, two of the most generous people I've ever met um, with information. They're just so happy to tell you. Paul always says, you know, I'll, I'll open the kimono. <laughs> There's no question out of bounds here when it comes to investing. And we sit in these group meetings and these fireside chats, and, um, you know, he just he does his best, you know. And one of the things I love about Paul, he says it all the time in office hours, uh, is I want you to win. He wants every entrepreneur to win. There's no one he looks at and says, I hope this guy fails. He looks at some of these people and thinks, well, you know, they're going to have a tough way. They're going to have a tough go of this, um, or that even that they're likely to fail. But he never wants any. You know, he wishes everyone the best of success in um, whatever role he can play in that. And so, he's been uh, a good guy to hang out with. But I've certainly learned a lot. 
What I really learned about startup investing is that you ha- you have to maintain discipline. And that means you decide, you know, you create your investment thesis before you go on the road uh, and you look at your checklist. I mean, I, I literally do this. I have a um, my thesis in the form of a checklist. So what will your thesis be? For people who don't understand necessarily what an investment thesis is, what, what would that? It's the, the parameters under which you'll invest. The kind of companies the kinds and of companies conditions that, that you look for. What stage they're in, you know, um, mine is very much on the person side. We talk about, um, you know, betting the jockey or betting the horse. Um, you're putting some money on both, of course, and if you really put money into it. But I'd lean a lot heavier towards the jockey and, and that founder's ability to do what he says he's going to do. Um, and so I just have this checklist. Um, yeah, and for me... They have to be early stage. The valuation has to be right, um, and it needs to be on the smaller end. One of Paul's, uh, part of his thesis is he makes very small bets, and so $25,000 or so um, is his first entry in because it gives him an opportunity, buys him a seat at the table. And when those companies go for another round of funding later, he wants to maintain his portion against his pro rata rights. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, that's part of his thesis that I've jumped on as well. So instead of making giant bets, I make very small bets, and we'll see how it goes. A little bit tied, uh, not unlike the Farnsworth Fund, a little bit. There you go. You know, we'll see a how it goes. small bets, huh? Yeah, you make a small bet, see how it goes. And if they start to produce the traction that you want them to, customer acquisition starts to go well, they start making some money. When they come around for more money, then, you know, it's much more likely they get a, a, a second check that's a, more meaningful. Um so one, one thing I want to just interject at this point sure. is that for those of you who are, are wondering about uh, how would I follow how all this happens and how uh, different rounds of funding take place and how, what effect that could have on what percentage and what value right. of the company we own, look for a book called The Equity Bible. Uh, it's, a, it's a marvelous, very simple-to-understand book that will walk you through that entire process. Great. Right. I, I think there is a lot of mystery around that, right? I, so, I think so, too. Yeah. I think there are a lot of people that expect, like, oh, my goodness, if I don't have my co- control, unquote, uh, right. then I'm, I'm, out of, I'm out of luck and I'm out of value, and that's entirely not true. Right. And it's not – they don't correlate. Right. In fact, maybe they negatively correlate. <laughs> yeah, it depends on the yeah, – yeah, it depends on the yeah. amount of control you exert. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, part of uh, the other conversation that I had picked up with Paul is that he never invests in more than 5%. He never takes more than 5% equity, and he wants absolutely nothing to do with a board seat or, you know, any of that. Um, and so I tend to, you know, go along those same lines, um, you know, in part because he's been successful and, again, you know, who might have reject his thesis. Um, and in large part, though, because it suits me really well, um, mm-hmm. you know, so I... I I've been much more comfortable in that arena. Um, we have another tech tour coming up here. We'll be in Phoenix, first week of September, uh, September 5th through the 8th, I think. I think you'll yeah. be back in Fort Wayne here and the month after that. He will be back in Fort Wayne in October, and I think I'm actually on the road uh, when he's here. Oh, <laughs> I'll no. Be, yeah, I have some uh, business out west, so um, I think I'm going to miss uh, miss him. But I would highly encourage you to um, to come out if you're – listen to this in the Fort Wayne area, highly encourage you to come and hang out and uh, meet Paul. So Renaissance man, worked (laughs) in printing, 
Uh, he detasseled corn. Uh, Indeed. He did investing. He works on turnarounds. Uh, he studies actually in the UK in a doctoral program. I do. I study at Cranfield University in Bedford, England. Um, and I'm also an entrepreneur in residence at Northumbria University up in Newcastle. There you go. Uh, and so whenever I go back to England, I get to the pleasure of teaching a couple classes usually and hanging out. And I'll be back there in uh, November this year. For Very May. good. So, yeah. So when we wrap up all that together, uh, where are you today and where do you, where do you see yourself going in the next few years? What's the future look like for Mark? Yeah, boy, that's a great question. Tough uh, one, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, so, you know, I, I've gone through this phase and I guess we didn't, we didn't talk about it much, but, um, I own businesses as yes. well, right? Um, and I bought my first business. I was, uh, I was 29, I think when I bought my first company, um, Along the way, we built that company organically, and then we also had a growth through acquisition strategy. We purchased 13 other companies in that vertical, and this was so in the printing Kind in, of a different arena. kind of investing where you're actually, it's more private equity. Oh, investing. it was absolutely, yeah. Uh, nothing angel or uh, startup about it. This was private equity. This was simple takeover of companies that were failing. Um, Works really well with somebody who knows how to run a turnaround. Right, exactly. It, it fit my skill set pretty well. And um, reap the rewards yourself. And reap the rewards myself. And, um, you know, along the way, so we made these acquisitions in this vertical, in the in the printing and direct mail marketing business. Um, and then um, I've purchased other companies outside of that vertical as well mm -hmm. and, and kind of work them through. Uh, we have a three-year process. I've got some managers that work with me, and they're, fantastic work through this this process and then we um you know usually sell those companies uh, to a strategic buyer somebody in, so in some people range. flip houses you flip businesses right that's exactly right um in terms of the future which you know the, the original question that you ask um i certainly can see myself continuing to do that because it's so fun um it, you know it um it's challenging on uh, I mean, such a level that uh, it's it's intellectually challenging. It's exhausting. Um, in the process, we're saving jobs. Um, you know, which is the the really gratifying part mm -hmm. is that you know you, you take this company that has fifty employees and their their doom is imminent, um, and we can save that business and save those jobs. And um, you know, those are typically pretty hardworking, good people. Uh, that we're helping to protect along the way, and we're glad for that. And and probably nothing more meaningful um, that I've ever done than than doing that, than the jobs that I've preserved. Um, must help you sleep well at night. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I see more of that. Um, I, academically, I think there's a bit of a future for me, or at least uh, um, you know, I, I'll submit my doctorate here early next year, probably January. Um, and so I, I'll be Dr. Mark, um, Dr. Mark. soon, soon after that, if all things go according to plan. Um, I love teaching. I can see myself continuing in some academic role. I've had some opportunity uh, to share my research as well through academic sources, and I'll continue along that path. Um, but, you know, the fun for me of being in school and everybody asks me, what are you going to do with your doctorate when you get there? It's not like you're going to get a promotion. It's like, <laughs> no, you're right. But it opens doors that would never be open. And I'm excited to find out what those are, and I'm excited to step a few, uh, step through a few of them, and see what's on the other side. And um, I do all that in the context of the, you know, I'm, and I'm being so blessed 
that I can afford to step through those doors. And if I don't like what's on the other side, I can come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's always something else. So. Okay. Yeah. So if there were listeners out here that think that there are candidates that you might want to talk to them about early stage investment, what kind of companies should be thinking that? Well, who are the right people that will fit your thesis? Mm-hmm. Well, we, we can look at... Um, and bear in mind, I need to say it before Mark does. Mark will talk to lots of companies and only invest in a few. Every investor does that. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Um, over the last two years, I've talked to literally hundreds. So this, this isn't a solicitation for an automatic investment. <laughs> it, <laughs> it is not, no. Uh, no, over the last... Um, well, just over the last year and a half that I've been traveling with Paul, I've probably heard... 400 investors. I, there's another group I also travel with called um, Funding Post. And between those two groups, I've probably listened to 400 pitches in the last two years, mm-hmm. invested in four, I think. Four? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the types. I, I don't, I, I'm agnostic when it comes to uh, industry. Um, but I like the, uh, again, I like the individuals to be very well-versed in their industry. I'll run from anybody that tells me they're entering a market with a startup that they've never been in before. Um, and that happens a lot, you know, and observers, people who look at an industry and say, well, I think I can be very effective there and knowing nothing about it and stepping in. Um, I'd like to learn on your dollar. That would be a good deal for them. That's, that's exactly right. Um, I, I'm looking at just because of the nature of my investment, again, the smaller dollar amounts, it can't be something that is, you know, this company can't be in their second, third, fourth round, no A rounds, anything like right. that, um, just because my proportion is so small, right? And so I look for earlier stage, but I like to see somebody with some traction. So I want to see either customer acquisition or uh, some revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, and those two don't necessarily run, you know, they're not necessarily hand in hand uh, always, right? I mean, they're all... Correct. You know, and so, um, you know, I... I would tell somebody just because you don't have revenue doesn't mean I'm not interested. If you can show me that you're, you're gaining support and your customer acquisition is going up, right? Because we know sometimes revenue trails. Um, but, I, you know, I like to be well beyond the prototype and idea stage. Okay. Yeah. Do you uh, have any preference as to geography? No, I think that's one of the great things about the last two years. Um, I used to be much more Northeast Indiana focused just because of, you know, I wanted to be closer and, um, and now I know, and I also have some other freedoms because my children are growing up and moving away. So I'm not as tied to Fort Wayne as I was at one mm-hmm. time. Um, you know, I, I tell people, this is the one thing I, everybody, um, I don't want control. I don't want a board seat. I don't want any of those things, but I also don't want to merely be a dollar. And therefore, I want to be able to con- add value in some way. Um, and that's undefined. It's undefined by me, and it's probably undefined by them, at, at least in the early stages. But as somebody who looks at me and says, you know, could I call on you? Could I just call you if I need advice? You know, um, or is there somebody that, you know, maybe you can help me by introducing me to this group of people or getting into something else? You know, if I can add value, then I'm much more interested. But if somebody's looking at me merely as, you know, some number of dollars, then I'm probably not that interested too. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, um, so one of the big hurdles would just be relationship. You know, you must be able to like, hit it off with uh, hit it off with the founder, if you will, 
and get to the point where you understand that you can have a good conversation there that will be mutually beneficial. Yeah, um, mutually beneficial conversation. You know, there's or even asymmetric. Help them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's there's a degree of vulnerability, right? And, and I think one of the things that yeah, I drill people. And I don't like to give away all my tactics because they might listen to this and then they'll pitch me later and they'll know. Uh, but I really <laughs> drill people pretty hard on talk to me about your competition. And it's not because I'm fearful of your competition or that you should be, but you certainly should be aware of them. Yes. And, you know, people who choose to turn a blind eye to that are being a little dishonest, either with themselves or with me or, in, you know, sometimes both. Um, and, you know, I don't I, I don't respond well to that. I want to understand your weakness. You know, I want to understand your view of why the competition might be better and in what way. I've been in more Um, than one meeting where someone has talked about a lack of competition or so forth. And someone at the exact table with a computer has gone online and found a direct competitor in 10 seconds. I do that a lot. That's no fun I for them. I do that a lot in pitch meetings, yeah. <laughs> someone say, we have no competition. It's like, oh, what about this Hang company? on a second. You Let know? me look. What about widgets.com? Yeah, it turns out they do exactly what you do. Um, you know, so, I mean, there is the, there's the awareness side of that. So the lack of awareness of competitive marketplace or the, the, the lack of awareness of their own, you know, personal, like, self-awareness, their poor self-awareness. Those things bother me, and then it was just this sort of a skimming of it or a, a failure to disclose it. Um, I accept that it requires some vulnerability, but so does writing a check, right? <laughs> and so, so if we can't be honest with each other, then you know, money only makes that worse. You know, so, so I'm going to wrap this up, Mark. I'm okay. going to do a quick little summary here. So do your best. Here we have across from the table, across the table from me. This guy that you've been listening to for years, Mark Hagar, uh, who believes in a strong work ethic, such as building up those calluses, detasseling that (laughs) corn, having a strong customer focus that he learned at his father's side in the barbershop, making the hard, tough, but rational decisions, which he's learned as a certified turnaround professional, and then always keeping in mind that the object is to help people and help them grow businesses entrepreneurially. Mark, that sounds like a charmed life. Congratulations. I've been very blessed, and I'm just uh, I'm glad to uh, be involved and continue to do what I do and continue to be on Your Business Matters. There you go. So. We'll invite you back next time. That's awesome. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you, listeners. Steve, that was fun. Thanks.